Good morning. Good morning. I think I'm the fifth person to say good morning this morning. Glad I still sense the energy. Uh, but um, yeah, if you don't know me, my name's Dan, uh, one of the pastors on staff. <clears throat> it's great to be here to share God's word. I uh, feel like spring is finally here, I think. Um, if you struggle with allergies, I pray for God's mercy over you. I know how hard that is. But um, yeah, congrats again to the new members. Um, yeah, we're thankful for you and pray that your years, hopefully many years here uh, at this church, <clears throat> will be fruitful. Uh, would you bow your heads uh, with me in a word of prayer um, as we look to the Lord uh, to guide our time uh, in his word together? Lord, we thank you for this precious time uh, to learn from you. Uh, God, as we uh, yeah, just heard these words from the scriptures, uh, it's, it's so encouraging to read that even the Son of God in all of his power and divinity prayed, prayed often, uh, prayed to the Father, prayed for help, for power, and prayed for us. God, we can't thank you enough that even along with this, even at this moment, Lord, you remain uh, as our great high priest, as the one who ever lives and continues to intercede for us in love. And thank you that your prayers for us are the most effective prayers that could ever be lifted up because you are in very nature God. So as we uh, learn from this word this morning, encourage our hearts, open our spiritual eyes, increase our faith, uh, speak into the very places in our hearts and minds where we need encouragement, uh, renewal, and strengthening and encouragement for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in our long journey through the book of John, and we're actually getting closer to the end here. And here in chapter 17, we come to the conclusion of Jesus's upper room discourse. Uh, discourse simply meaning expression of uh, his thoughts. And it's a very, very precious time for Jesus as he's sharing uh, his final words of instruction, uh, teaching, and pastoral care uh, for his close disciples. And so everything he said here uh, from chapter 14 to this point was very intentional, uh, very weighty, and was fueled with love, affection, as well as challenge uh, as they were preparing for what was ahead of them. And it's a very important chapter for us to read and understand because as I prayed and we're told in the New Testament, Jesus, he prayed a lot when he was on earth. You know, often retreating on his own 40 days at a time, lifting up many, many prayers and supplications, uh, as we read in Hebrews 5, 7, sometimes with loud cries and tears. And uh, I'm, I'm very curious sometimes, like, what did Jesus pray for? What did he pray about? Because not a lot of that uh, was recorded for us. But here in John 17, uh, we have the privilege of being able to read what Jesus prayed word for word. As number one, Jesus most likely prayed uh, all this in front of his disciples so that they could hear it. And number two, God, uh, by the Holy Spirit, inspired uh, John, the gospel writer, to record uh, the entirety of this prayer so that as we read it today, we can learn from it, learn many lessons uh, about prayer and the heart of Christ. You know, when you listen to someone's prayer, you can tell a lot about what's important to them. So maybe after service today, during prayer times, you kind of listen to what people are praying. Not, don't do that, it's kind of creepy, but, um, but what they pray for on the top of their prayer list, uh, what they pray for the longest, uh, you see uh, what they're passionate about, what's on their heart, and here we get to see what's on the heart of Jesus. So there's two parts to this sermon. Uh, number one, uh, Jesus' prayer for himself, and the second part we'll look at is Jesus' prayer for 
uh, his disciples. And as we study that section, we'll also see what, by extension, he actually prays for us uh, today. Well, number one, Jesus' prayer for himself. <clears throat> and uh, before I get into this, uh, I want to encourage anyone here today who might be uh, seeking, uh, new to church, uh, you want to learn more about what Christianity is all about, not quite sure what this is all, this is all for. First, we welcome you, any newcomers, and we're so glad you're here. Um, but I want you to know that, yeah, a lot of what's here in this first point, I thought about you. Uh, I thought about how to make clear what uh, the gospel is all about. And for anyone else who's struggling in their faith in Christianity, to be reminded uh, of the amazing gifts uh, that God offers us through his wonderful, wonderful, great salvation. And so this is all laid out for us. I'll read again verses 1 through 5. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So what we can gather so far as you've been, um, we've been reading these first, first five verses is that as Jesus is praying for himself, it's not out of self-interest, but it's concerning his role in the magnificent overall redemption plan of God. He says, Father, calling him Father, showing the very intimate nature of their relationship in the Godhead. Father, glorify your Son. Glorify me. Not in a selfish way, but as we read, he's saying, glorify me so that I can return that glory, so that the Son may glorify you, the Father. And in verse 2, we see why. Why, he's, why is he praying for this? He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh. You have placed him in a position to rule over all things. Why? So that he can just sit on an earthly throne and enjoy all that power for himself? No. So that he can give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You see, it's about the great divine plan of salvation that the Father and Son have been planning since, at the end of verse 5 we read, before the world existed. And that is crazy, that since before the world existed, anything came to be that God the Father and God the Son had been planning a way for you and I, all mankind, to be saved from the hole that they have created for themselves because of sin, the sin that separates us from him. And that plan was for Jesus, God the Son, to come in the flesh with all the authority that we just read about that God had placed on him to die on a cross, to pay the debt that sinners owe for their rebellion against God. We're approaching the end of Lent season. Uh, Holy Week is, will be upon us next week. And this is where we focus our attention on, the hope that comes from these truths, that Jesus did all this for you and me in, some, in our worst situations of our lives. And he is the one who gives eternal life. So if you've come here this day, not knowing God, feeling far from Jesus. You feel like your life is one big mess. You don't know what to do to clean it up. You might feel shameful and unworthy to even utter the name of God, knowing the places you've been, the things you've done, how you feel about yourself. That's what this plan was all about. 
to relieve us from this great burden to save ourselves. That's the great message of Christianity, that we can't save ourselves. Now, throughout the book of John, uh, we've heard the phrase eternal life pretty often, especially in, verse, in John 3.16, um, for God so loved the world uh, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. But here in verse 3, we see Jesus unpacking for us what eternal life means. And I appreciate this verse. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So as Jesus is making these requests in prayer, we see how much his heart is filled with love and affection and care for those whom the Father has given him, those called by God to faith and to become saved. That more than just being a religious experience, coming to church and wanting to feel a little bit of relief about how you've lived, that more than just being baptized and becoming a member of a church community, all those things are wonderful, but life on heaven and earth and thinking about this wonderful gift that we get to live eternally one day, that it's about knowing God. Knowing God, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this gives us pause to reflect and think, what is the substance of our Christianity? What drives us? What fuels our faith? Is it all the activity and trappings of church and what we're excited about? Or is it God himself and the way we relate to him, love him, live in the perfect love he has for us in that wonderful, rich, precious intimacy? This shows us that what we should be enjoying most about being Christians is not just the fact that we get a free ticket to heaven one day, although that's wonderful. I really believe the message of Easter reminds us that as Christians, of all the peoples on the earth, that we should fear death and our mortality the least. But it's even better than that. The fact that our Creator and Savior came down to us, inviting us and allowing us to know Him in this way. This is much different from all the other religions of this world where these godlike deity figures sit high up on this distant hill, and all of life is what? Working hard on your own effort to live a life that's holy enough to earn their favor so you can somehow get closer to them. But Christianity is the opposite. And if you've never heard that before, let that sink in that it's not on you and me in all of our best efforts to climb up to God. But God came down to us. Christianity tells us that we're born in sin, born depraved, that salvation is by grace through faith alone, and that when he came down to us, it was to become like us, to stay near us, and to walk next to us as we live our lives. And because of that, we can be absolutely assured of our salvation. And that, friends, is the substance of our faith. Not that we're perfect, not that we have our lives all put together. I know that that's one of the main things that the outside world gets turned off about Christianity is that Christians tend to think that they're perfect and they look down on other people, but that's not what the message is about at all. It's that we're not perfect at all. We don't measure up, no matter how hard we try, even on our best day. The substance of our faith is that we are known perfectly by a holy God and we can live in the eternal security of his unending, unfailing, 
everlasting love for you and me that nothing on heaven and earth can separate us from or revoke because it's ours by faith. Um, congratulations to the members who became members of our church. I've been conducting membership interviews uh, here at Renewal Church for years. Some go longer than others. I apologize to those who I tortured with some of these interviews. Uh, but I'm reminded lately that uh, one thing I always want to emphasize is that we as a church leadership, uh, one of our big burdens is that everyone that we invite into our fold right, who are in Christ, that they know that they're saved, that they're assured of their salvation. Mainly because of what the Bible declares, that the work and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus are effective enough to secure that, no matter what we do. But also because of the truth that God knows all of us so deeply, yet loves us so dearly. And a big fruit of that saving faith is that you know in your life that you want God. You want to be close to him. You're walking closely with him. What we recently heard about abiding in the vine, that's something our hearts crave more and more. And even if there are days where we feel weary, broken, and lost, that's somewhere in the back of our hearts and minds. We know that we can't find our way unless we root ourselves in Christ the vine. And so as Christians, we can know God personally on earth, but what is also so appealing about the eternal life we will experience in heaven is that that knowledge of God will continue. We will continue to know God in a way unlike on earth where we only see God by faith but in a way that's perfect and untainted. Heaven is appealing not just because of the fact that we'll live forever, not just because we read about crystal lakes, new earth, mansions of glory, many rooms prepared, but that our faith will become sight and what we believed in faith or who we believed in, we will see with our very eyes. You can reference 1 John 3, 2, where the Apostle John, he says these words. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he does appear, we shall be made like him in all of his glory and perfection. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. This is one of my favorite promises in all the Bible, that we shall see him as he is. Praise the Lord that that is what we can look forward to most when we think about what's awaiting us in glory. Being able to see God. When my father passed away, I gave the eulogy at his funeral. And towards the end of that, that's what I focused on. You know, my dad, he wore these, the same glasses, I think, his entire life. So that um, days when I was younger, when he didn't wear glasses, I thought he was a stranger invading the house. I was like, you know, and once he put it on, I'm like, oh, that's him. I, sometimes I think, I wonder if my son feels the same way about me. <laughs> but, um, and he wore the glasses in the casket. That's, what, that's how they prepared him. And I remember saying, uh, Dad, you wore those glasses, your silly, those silly glasses your whole life, but you don't need them anymore. Everything you strain to see on earth, it's gone. And you can see God perfectly now. And that's what we should look forward to most. Yes, all the pain and tears and shame of this earthly life will be wiped away forever, but we will be in the unhindered presence of God forevermore and our joy will be complete and how do we live in that hope now it's by worshiping by lifting up our hearts and our voices and praise and song something we cannot help but doing 
And our joy is completed by the expression of that praise. So that's why we sing. That's why we never cease to sing. That's why we never cease to go out there and proclaim what we have seen and witnessed in the great salvation of our God. We're all capable of doing it, right? Anything good that happens to us, you know, some of us, it's like, I need to share it, whether it's in, in person, whether we call someone, whether it's in social media, and I especially love it when people express their love of food so I can try new foods. <laughs> you know, I, I ask you to keep doing that. Uh, but that's just an illustration of what it, ought to be, what it ought to look like and what the expressions should look like we sing of the great joys that we have found in God, the bread of life. We have tasted and seen that he is good. I want to share that food. I want to share what I've savored and enjoyed so much at the feasting table of our great God. And that is what eternal life is all about. So if you're a struggling Christian, we're just trying to learn more about our faith. And I know a lot of us, you know, we struggle to really understand how to be quote-unquote, a good Christian, right? One who walks faithfully. One who doesn't fall and live a life of discouragement as much. That's, this is what we need to come back to, what the Word of God says. So continue to come out. Come out to our meetings, our gatherings, especially in this Easter season. We'd love to encourage you, welcome you, get to know you, and invite you to get to know our God better. Secondly, uh, the second part of this message, Jesus prays for his disciples. The two things he prays for his disciples are protection and purification. Protection, verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. Verse 15, I do not ask them that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus here is acknowledging that one of the greatest needs that the disciples will have going forward is the protection of God. Now think of how so many of us value this idea of protection. Think of the things we're willing to purchase insurance for, right? For our homes, our cars, even the screens on our phones because the kids step on them all the time. We seek protection when we see how truly fragile our lives are, our possessions are. And when we see that there are genuine threats and dangers to be avoided. And so as Jesus was getting ready to leave his disciples to return to the Father, he remembered that this entire time he had been the one leading them, guiding them, and protecting them. The entire time that he was there with them, but he was now about to leave. And there was a sense that he wanted someone trustworthy to watch over them, leaving them in good hands as they parted ways. And that's why he prayed. This reminds me of the years I spent as a pastor of the college ministry. Uh, there were several years where before the fall semester started, I would get a voice message or an email from parents of incoming freshmen from all over the world. Pastor, could you please keep an eye on my son and my daughter? Make sure they go to church. Make sure they make good friends. Make sure they don't join a cult. Make sure they don't do anything weird, <laughs> all that. And uh, I received those emails with grace. But it's all I could do to tell them, yes, I'll try. 
But at the end of the day, your children are in God's hands. I'm not God. I cannot do anything. But I get their heart uh, looking out for the protection and well-being of their children. But here Jesus was asking God for so much more because he was well aware of the real spiritual dangers and threats that existed in the world that they were about to be released into to continue his very work. On one level, there would be the ones who hated them because they hated Jesus. And number two, the enemy, Satan himself. The ones who hated and persecuted them would surely do the same because, uh, as he said, no servant is greater than the master. We heard about that a few weeks ago. Satan's instruments, these people, to fulfill his purposes, which is what ultimately? To discourage us, to distract us as Christians from our relationship with God and our mission, to stand in the way and thwart God's purposes for his people in this world. You know, the enemy is relentless. He sometimes strikes fiercely in overt ways in some places in the world, certain mission fields, to strike fear in the hearts of the people that serve him. But in so many other places, it's done in such a subtle way, right? The enemy knows us well, knows our weak spots. He lies in the shadows, spiding his time, waiting. He studies us, knows exactly what to poke at so that we'll be distracted, will turn away from God, will forsake his mission, behave in ungodly ways, look out for ourselves, stop loving others. Lately, as a leadership, we've been praying together, um, staff leaders, uh, we've been expressing how clear it is that in this season now, the enemy's pretty active, trying to discourage us, distract us, as we're praying about making many plans to move forward to fulfill God's mission. It's happening in all of our campuses as well as other churches in our here, neighboring churches in our city, in the surrounding areas. In some cases, some crazy, even unthinkable things happening, causing leaders to be discouraged and winded. And you know, when God's people are on the move, the enemy is not happy. He won't rest. And so as Jesus was praying for his disciples, his heart broke. Father, I can't take them out of this world because they're there for your mission. I gotta leave them there. So protect them. Keep them. Keep them in your mighty care. So why does he do that? Keeping them there when, you know, the danger that he's asking for uh, them to be protected from is so close by and right there. Well, here's where the second request uh, sheds a little light on this question. Jesus also prays for their purification, their sanctification. In verses 17 through 19, it says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. It's so that as they remain in this world, in places of spiritual opposition. It's so that their Christ-likeness, their love for God, the way they reflect God in holiness and obedience would ultimately impact and change the world for his kingdom's sake. In the midst 
of facing spiritual opposition. So we'll unpack that a little bit here. The first thing to note is that it's the truth that sanctifies his people. Sanctify them in truth. We don't grow in Christ-like character by our own willpower or through different exercises. It happens as we receive, hear, listen to, and are convicted by the truth of God's word. That's why sitting under the preaching of God's word is so important. That's why reading your Bible daily is so important because it's the power of God's truth that convicts us of sin and we become sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit that works through his word to lead us to repent and turn from our sin. So that's how Jesus is praying for them, but for what purpose? So that they can live as a distinct people who expose the darkness in this world. Now this is an important prayer because our natural inclination is to minimize how different we are, right? Depending on where we're at, what context we're living in, what social circles we're in. So we don't want to cause that much trouble. We don't want to live that uncomfortably. But we simply can't. Because these words remind us, what Jesus is praying for his disciples and us reminds us that we are not of this world. And that disconnect, that sometimes feeling that we're different, is supposed to happen. That's inevitable. Because we are called out of this world. I love those words. Those, uh, I love that phrase, called out. I use it for a lot of my social media because it's actually the literal translation for the Greek word ekklesia, which is, a, is, which is used for uh, the church, the people called out of the darkness of the sinful world to be his glorious light. I need to remember that every time I uh, interact with people, that I'm not to just uh, uh, act out of my own self, self-interest, but to glorify God in a way that reflects him. But that's how God's people are to be. Why? Because we truly don't belong here. And because we don't belong here, we will inevitably face the opposition that is aimed at people who don't belong. Have you ever felt that, like you didn't belong somewhere? You know? Have you ever rooted for a sports team as a visiting fan? <laughs> I do a lot. <laughs> there are people who remind you that you don't belong with uh, interesting choice of words. But when you're with the people right, that you resonate with, you're one in heart with, who you're cheering for, it's a much different thing. We are not of this world. And so it is with us who are the people of God. People will eventually notice that we live by a different set of values. We root for a different team. They might be opposed to, completely in disagreement with. And then the opposition will be clear. Jesus said here, it's inevitable. No servant is greater than the master. But it's in the midst of that fierce opposition, that we have opportunity to do great works for God. I love this quote I recently heard. When the church is most persecuted and embattled, that is where we have always seen the true church arise as the purest and the most motivated because it is costly to love Jesus. And because of that cost, we're willing to pay in faith the most rewarding. Costly to love Jesus and the most rewarding. And I, I think about that a lot. What is it costing me in my life to live for Jesus 
to serve his people, to live a life of witness for his mission. When we do that, it's not necessarily our charisma, our energy, how theologically astute we are, how well organized our churches, our fancy, our services are, but the fact that we are so in love with the one that we are willing to face this opposition for because he's everything to us. We celebrate and rejoice in all that he's done because we know that salvation is so personal. It runs deep. It's changed everything about us. That is what will win the world. That is what fuels everything we do, all our service to the unfortunate, everything we do to welcome people here, our worship services. There's spiritual power in that when we are so in love with God and there's absolute, intimate, personal worshiping taking place in all of our hearts. They'll see that there's something missing. They'll ask. They'll wonder. Because we are not of this world. We belong to a different king. He works through us in very distinct ways. So that's why he prays for our protection, but leaves us in the world because of his protection when he keeps us in his hand and our purification, sanctifying us in his truth, is for the purpose of proclamation, proclaiming, making Jesus known, upholding and fulfilling his mission until he brings us home. That's the purpose for this prayer. Remember I said, listen to someone's prayer. We see what's on their heart. The heart of Jesus was his mission. And he didn't stop halfway. He carried his cross all the way to Calvary. And in his dying breath, he said, it is finished. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He says here in verse 4, looking ahead to what would happen on Good Friday. That's why we, Renewal Church family, here at West Philly, at Center City, soon South Jersey, all across uh, this world, global partners serving the Lord today, that's why we've been created and commissioned to advance his name. So a couple of practical applications as we close. Number one, as we pray in this season of prayer for our church, uh, some of you, I'm sure, you're spending extra time this Lent season to make time for, uh, make space for the Lord in prayer. Examine the things you've been praying for and ask why you've been praying for them. And ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart behind your prayer so that the answers you're seeking are for the mission of God, for the kingdom of God first. So are you praying for your future today? I know a lot of us are. Are you praying for clarity and guidance as you make decisions for yourself, for your family? Ask that that will be made clear, not just for a sense of peace, but that you can serve God's kingdom. Singles, are you praying for your future spouse day and night? Ask that God would provide the right person for you in your search so that you can serve God's kingdom together. That's what it's ultimately for. Are you praying for a good job or to get into a good grad program? You know, some high school kids here, are you praying to get into a good college, have a nice, wonderful future and career for yourself? Ask that God would lead you to where you can best serve God's kingdom 
Don't neglect the importance of a good church nearby. Right? Place that in the list of things you pray for. Parents, are you praying for your children and their future, their well-being, that they'll be taken care of? That's great and that's wonderful, but pray that they would be mightily used by God for his kingdom and all that they do because that is on the heart of God. A lot of us have been praying the Lord's Prayer. It, it moves us in that direction. We pray for his kingdom come and his will to be done before we ask for the daily bread so that the priorities are in the right place and set. So I encourage us all in that direction. And secondly, as I've been saying here, let's pray. Let's pray not just mindlessly and you know, just in every which way direction, but with an eye on the spiritual opposition that is very, very real in front of us. Remember, as the Apostle Paul said, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. When people oppose you, Yes, that needs to be handled with wisdom and care, but no, that Satan is behind so many things. To weaken our relationship with God, to harden our hearts. So the first place we should go to is the Lord, that God would protect us, our church family, just as he prayed to the Father to protect his disciples. In that place where things are so difficult, pray for the shield of faith, which God promises would extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one to weaken us, to discourage us. Pray for the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with which we can fight back and say, I will not give in to resentment. I will not give in to temptation because of the almighty divine promises of God. And as you're dressed in the full armor of God, pray in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers and requests with all perseverance, Ephesians 6. Because as you do, the Spirit seals these truths, these words on your heart. And your mission is clear. You have clarity to choose the right battles. We don't respond in the way that the enemy would entice us to, but in faith, in love, in the spirit of Christ. He has set us apart for all that he has called us to do. We belong to the kingdom of light. The enemy wants to bring that kingdom down, but he has no shot because of what the final victory and the resurrection tells us. What is guaranteed for God's people. And that is why we can hang in there, overcome, and not just get by living in darkness and dark days, but we can pierce the darkness with the everlasting, life-giving light of Christ that has come to extinguish the darkness in this world. And anyone who has that light lives in the light. So we continue to pray this way with our eyes open, mindful of the spiritual opposition, and by his power we can pray in Jesus' name that the opposition can be bound and we can serve his purpose as he has called us. So in this season, as we think about the victories of Christ and his resurrection, may we be encouraged, as I've been encouraged in my own struggles and, and weariness, to know that there is a God much greater than us, upholding us, ushering us forward, praying for us, loving us, even when we're discouraged. And he lifts us up. His hands are mightier than ours. So as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we see him fulfill all his promises to us that are yes and amen in Christ. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer as we close our service today?